Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, well, just head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Note, you can use the QR code over here if you just want to shoot that with a phone or other device that handles QR. That will take you into part of the queue where you can put your questions in. You can also type in the little URL at the top if you don't want to use the QR code. The askofficehours.com link will also get you into our question system where you can put your questions in. And of course, our show is run by your questions. Once they're in the Mukana queue, the other part of the process is to vote on them. So if there are questions that attract your attention, you want us to spend more time and emphasize those questions a little more, vote them. We appreciate that. And this show is driven by your votes. So it's very important to participate in that if you'd like. Today in our second hour, we're talking about Apple's new iPhone 15. It's shipping now. People are getting them in their hands. I know Alex has one and he'll be talking to us a little bit about what he's explored with his new phone. So we'll discuss the features and how to get the most out of them. It has some more video capabilities than the prior phones had. So that's pretty exciting. That's our second hour today, but we are in the first hour. So Mitch, what is our first question for today? Thank you, Bill. First in, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. A live event to be streamed on YouTube as a DJ during the pre-show. How would you avoid a YouTube content strike? Alex is going to start us off. Alex? There's a couple different ways to do that. Uh, number one is is that uh, you can, um, with these songs, a lot of times you won't get strikes, you'll get flags. So you'll get flagged for it, but you won't get striked for it. So what you do is you take all those songs and you upload them to a, uh, you can put them all in one long video and upload them to YouTube. You don't even need to actually publish it. YouTube has a content checker and it will tell you what what's going to happen with those as you as you upload them so you can find the songs that you might want to use there and just see if you're going to get a flag or you're going to get it now what what happens with the flag is you'll oftentimes be demonetized so you won't be able so if you're if you care then that that but most like corporations or people running events may not care about the monetization they're just trying to get it out on YouTube so if you don't care then you can just take the flag um, if you do care then then you want to be careful. You you want to be uh, you, you won't be able to do. You won't be able to use commercial work because <laughs> you're going to get flagged for everything that goes through. But what you're looking for is are you going to get a strike? Um, a lot of us have a bunch of burner accounts on YouTube that we use this for just in case. So and we will oftentimes publish those as unlisted because the unlisted will go through the same um, YouTube eye as the as the um, pub public one. The private one sometimes is treated a little differently. So. Um, so what you can do there is just publish as un unlisted to make absolutely sure. And if you get a strike, then use another account the next time. <laughs> so you get three strikes typically uh, before your account is, is um, not able to stream. So if you put those up, you can make that happen and you can figure out whether you're going to get flagged or not. Uh, you will get flagged for everything that is commercial. Uh, it's just a question of whether you're going to get str a strike. And the reason the strike is important is the strike may actually kill your event while it's live, um, whereas a flag will just flag it as it goes through to monetize it later. It won't really matter. Now, the right way to do this is to go to every company, that, every publisher that publishes these things and clear them. And we have done that, but it takes a long time. Like, you got to find the person who's accountable for it. You got to, you know, talk to them. And they, what they have to do is go into a CMS inside of YouTube and they have to, they have to clear list your channel to play that content. And you have to, and you have to match that and you have to do it with every single song. Now that may seem like a lot, but if a, a, a DJ doing 20 minutes of it 
um, is probably eight songs, right? So that's, you know, eight, six to eight songs. So if there's six to eight songs you might have to clear um, to do that. But you do have to work with the DJ so they don't do any kind of, uh, <laughs> any audibles. Uh, they have to really play exactly what they're going to play to make that actually work. But you can do that as well as far as clearing those. That is, there's probably some cost involved and so on and so forth for that. Another way that you can go is using something like Epidemic Sound. Um, Epidemic Sound is um, will allow you to purchase. These won't be the pop songs that you might want for the DJ, but if you're looking for DJ kind of music, Epidemic Sound is a Swedish-based company, so a lot of the pop songs that you hear <laughs> come out of Sweden, and they're pretty darn good at it. Um, you can find a bunch of stuff that probably fits inside that that will give you the groove but isn't necessarily the pop songs that you would need. And when you sign up for Epidemic Sound, you're clearing yourself for YouTube. So those are things that you can – those are a couple different ways that you can handle all of that um, in ways that aren't going to get you uh, knocked off the off-air. Hey, Alex, have you had much experience in terms of buyout music and whether that creates copyright flags? I know there was some well, again, confusion. Epidemic Sound is like a buyout music. It's, it's, you know, you can, I wouldn't use needle drop. I wouldn't use needle drop where you're purchasing those like you would with stock photography. So the stock, um, and the, here's why, is that they, other people have used that stock audio from from things and they've claimed it in their thing in YouTube. So you may get a flag or a strike from somebody, some random producer who put it up because what they do is they put it up and they say, I'm, I'm going to claim my content. They're not thinking about that song or that that beat mix or whatever that's there. And so they're claiming it kind of indirectly. So you'll see this random person that has claimed your, your the, con, the the song on your thing. So usually uh, companies, so what Epidemic Sound does is they're putting it, they're putting it up um, they, uh, they're putting that up, but they're claiming all of their own content before they make it available on their website. We should bring them on to explain this a little bit, but my understanding of how they do yeah. it is they, they claim it ahead of time and then they have it on tracking so they can see who's using it. And of course they can come after you if you aren't paying for it when you put it up. Now you get to keep that content for the time that you, you get to keep anything you downloaded while you were subscribed to Epidemic Sound into perpetuity. It's not like you lose your thing if you stop paying the, there's a subscription of like 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month I don't know something like that um, but but it so it doesn't mean that if you stop subscribing you suddenly can't use the music but and they're, they seem to be pretty lenient about the whole thing I mean they're, they're, you know it just keeps you in the up and up but that's the one that has been the best at, at doing that and it's to be honest it's some of the best royalty free or semi royalty free music out there is epidemic in my opinion i've used it for a bunch of projects and i've used a lot of different ones pond 5 and and then many ones where you pay a lot more if you pay a lot more you oftentimes they've gone through that process as well so if you're paying a thousand dollars a track or five thousand dollars a track you're going to get the the kind of music that you expect but if you're paying 10 bucks a, a track or five bucks a track or 15 dollars a track you're going to have you're, you're probably going to you, you you have you risk having problems all the way through to make that actually happen. So um, I think that epidemic sound is probably the safest way to go. Um, and the, well, the safest way is, is to buy is to buy the copyrights out or buy the access to those copyright materials directly from the publisher. But that's the most expensive. The least the next one down is epidemic, which is not very expensive, but will protect you. And then the final one is to t just put stuff up there and test it and see what happens. Mitch. I think the safest thing to do would be play classical music um, where the no. uh, copyrights have written. They, they Library no, of Congress? But the, but the publishing... It's the performance that's... The performance uh, yeah, is still there. So you're, you're, some Philharmonic pay, uh, played that, you know, did that, and they own that the rights to that, that performance rights to that. 
and you won't be able to, you know, now if you took it, and the problem is, is that you say, well, I could just use the MIDI, right? <laughs> and then just play it out using, you know, whatever. But the problem is it'll, it'll do a match against that, against something that's already been, has performance rights claimed. And so you'll end up with, you'll still end up with that, that problem. And, and of course, if you're trying to get the DJ vibe, <laughs> doing a DJ vibe to, to Beethoven's fifth might be hard. You know, like it just, it just, I'm just saying there's a lot of strings and they, they don't know if they scratch as well. So, yeah, copyright has always been complex. Uh, it takes some time. So just as Alex noted, be careful. Try to uh, dot your I's and cross your T's so you don't have the hassle of putting all that work into your piece and then finding you're subject to a takedown or something like that. That's never any fun. Let's go on to our next question. Next one, if John Preto, Las Vegas, Nevada. For those lucky enough to catch Guy streaming from Zoomtopia, what was the device that Guy was showcasing? And I'm really upset because I missed it. Guy, what did you do and how did it work and what's happening? You missed it. It was kind of a happy accident. So there was a behind the scenes tour at Zoomtopia that uh, I really wanted to go to. And it was actually sold out. I wasn't even sure if I was going to get in. Uh, luckily, we, get, we got friends and I was like, hey, do you mind if I uh, show this in After Hours where we can actually take 30 of our closest friends or so into the behind the scenes? So we were able to take uh, this cart, which held... Um, and thank you to Keenan for loading us his uh, disaster group uh, modem to allow this to happen. This gave us four cellular modems, which we used at Cinegear as well. And uh, that was on a cart with a, a bad wheels, actually, for those that watched it. <laughs> you, you learn that, uh, you know, $100 on a cart is not where you want to be. You want something with some beefier wheels. So we had some troubles getting over threshes. But we, the device that we were showing there was called the Ivy, IVI, spelled, you know, just I stole the table tent that we had on in our booth. But yeah, if you go to myivy.com, you, you can check it out. Actually, I have a little, um, I don't have screen share up, but th this is kind of what it looks like. I can show it on my iPad. This was a USDZ that nice. we converted over uh, and did a keynote magic move. But basically, it's a prompter. 10-inch uh, screen that has a 4K webcam behind that, and then it's got speakers, a microphone, um, and then you just plug in your your favorite uh, NUC or Mac and uh, or tablet. That and is then, awesome. How do people find out more about that? Uh, I'll put a link in the chat to have people show up, but it, it was well-received. I was impressed to hear from teachers. Uh, the mayor of Fremont um, had their tech people there, and he was just like, we could have so used this. He's like, one of our, our top guys that uh, gave us good kudos, good feedback, because that's what we were there for, is to get feedback, see what people thought of it. And we were lucky to be able to cruise uh, around the show floor because some of the Zoom people came up and they're like, um, I didn't know we sold a mobile sponsorship. And I'm like, um, <laughs> I'm just bringing my friends on a tour of the show floor. And so I'd show up, you know, all of our guys in Germany and so you went Australia. a little. <laughs> A little gorilla, and it was in the awesome. it was in the show notes. Uh, no gorilla marketing, and I'm like, but I'm just showing my friends from around the world Zoomtopia that could fly all the way out here. You know, we've done this before, so it was just it was a lot of fun being able to, especially go behind the scenes and, and thank Andy and uh, Sam for really uh, letting us go on this 45 minute tour. We got to see Tiles, which is an app that hasn't been released yet, but it's by Liminal that allows you to. Uh, uh, from what I understand, you, you put people inside of it in, in Unreal Engine. You, if somebody turns off their camera, it can flip around. Uh, it goes with Production Studio. So there was some cool stuff that I didn't get to hear all of it because I was so busy running the cart behind the scenes. And uh, 
uh, checking for reactions and trying to frame things up. I'm so used to having a regular camera, but I had to go in Discord and, and say, hey, can somebody request camera control and take control of the camera behind the, behind the scenes? So, <laughs> so I think you we were recruiting con- crew online in live time during the show. <laughs> exactly. I was like, take control. That's awesome. Yeah, we actually had uh, Michael Slade on an iPhone, so he gave us a secondary shot, which was cool. So we could actually see what was going on uh, from an angle in case I got blocked. So there was a lot of learning experiences uh, being able to go on the show floor differently than a well-planned event. This was just kind of like last minute. In fact, uh, I barely got some road goes on them, which was super handy because we had one on Andy, one on Sam. That gave us good intelligible audio because they were so far away at some points. They were they were probably a good, you know, 20 feet away on some of the things. And those cable troughs were like danger. Uh, man, getting that cart over those cable troughs backstage was something else. But it was a lot of fun. Nice. Well, I'm really now sorry that I missed it, but it sounds like you had a great time. And and so those of you who have been playing with office hours but haven't got as deeply involved, uh, this was something that it looks like it ended up in after hours. So people got an extra special look inside things at Zoomtopia by virtue of the fact that they had been hanging around office hours and playing with the back end stuff and generally getting to know everyone. So that's, that's a big plus right there for why we... Always make it available for you to get involved. And if you're interested in this kind of technology, can pay benefits. Let's go to the next question. Next up, Douglas Carmichael. I'm considering getting into drones with a DJI Mini 4 Pro, but concerned about protecting myself in case of an accident. Would an umbrella insurance policy be a good idea just in case of an accident during non-commercial drone use? Courtney Gooden. Uh, yes, if you carry a general liability insurance package, I, I have one that ca- I pay about uh, 230 bucks a year for uh, that has a million dollar liability for <clears throat> just anyone that would sue me over anything uh, that they would think I would, li- I would be liable for. But make sure to check the policy because insurance companies are weird they like to exclude stuff if there's you know if they get a a lot of claims about something they will end up sticking that in as an exclusion i don't think they've been sued a lot of times over drones so you're probably safe there uh and uh also, if you think your uh, your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance may cover you, it may exclude certain vehicles and certain non-registered things. So take a look at that, too. Jesse. Also, I'd change the direction you're looking a bit. That insurance policy isn't really to protect you. The drone is too grand. That's to protect everyone else for what the, the drone might do, the, the level of damage it can do. Also, um, I would suggest dropping the non-commercial drone use. That's not protection from any kind of liability at all. Yeah, insurance is complicated. And if you don't, you know, if you're planning on really making money at this through your career, at some point, you're going to have to kind of get yourself your toes at least into it, find an insurance broker locally for you. I will tell you that before in my early career, I had a broker that I could trust and after was night and day because I ran into circumstances where somebody said, hey, we're going to shoot in the football stadium. And I called to try to make arrangements to get in, even on like a weekend when it was empty to shoot. And they goes, yeah, it's fine. You can come as long as you have, you know, two million and an insurance certificate. So to be able to call a broker and say, look, I need a cert for tomorrow and it has to cover this and that. And the broker who was doing their business correctly would pop that onto a fax, fax it to them. And the next thing you know, we're allowed to shoot as opposed to not being allowed to shoot. So having that 
building that infrastructure of a trusted insurance broker or someone agent that can take care of these kind of things is a big deal if you want to make money at this in the long run. So just just a note. Next question. Simon Ray from Midlands, UK, asking, does the panel have any recommendations for one-time password apps for the iPhone to help with two-factor authentication? Jason, what say you? Absolutely. Um, OTP Auth, which you actually have to put into the App Store. Uh, Coopers with two R's dot D-E is the website. What I like about this one is it's cross-platform. It works for Google, uh, Microsoft. You don't need five different double-factor um, double authentication apps. It will do all of them, and it is cross-platform. Your watch, your phone, and the Mac will, will work perfectly. Nice. All right. Let's go to the next question. Brody Hefner in New York City. The U.S. Congress recently passed a bill to eliminate the college degree requirement for tech-related government positions in favor of skills and experience criteria. Is this consistent with tech employment practices at other large organizations? Jesse, start us out. I can't speak on other large organizations, but I can speak on our hiring practices, and this is absolutely consistent. Uh, you need to know how to do the thing, and a lot of the things in the tech sector aren't really being taught because they're being invented in real time, and it'll be 10, 20, 30 years before the people who are inventing it now retire and become teachers who teach those things. There you go, Alex. I mean, I don't hold it against people who have college degree in, in their field, but but it doesn't really it doesn't really affect how I view I, in general all of our hiring practices in the last uh, my hiring practices at least. I don't even know where people went to school. It's not part of a resume. Usually, it's someone that I know, and it's something that's connected. Uh, we've seen that also occur at at a variety of companies. There's still some stodgy companies that are that are requiring things, but in general, that requirement has been being eliminated from most of the tech companies in the last five years um, just because they can't find enough people. And in addition to that, there's a strong belief. If you look at the Grow with Google and some of the other things, those are Grow with Google is Google giving up on college degrees. Like, you know, like that's what you need to that you need to know is they don't feel like they're getting the people that they need um, from the, you know, from the, from the general sector, from the education sector. And so they're just going directly to, you don't need a degree. You can start this anytime you want. You can go through our training and get in. Um, so, so you should look at, I mean, they're not just saying, we're not going to worry about your degree. They're actually building an entirely parallel training system. And so, um, so you should, you know, I think that you're going to probably see this happen a lot more because these companies are having a harder and harder time finding talent. And that's going to have them to build more and more training programs that are, related to not needing the colleges to do that. Mitchell. Uh, TV personality and voiceover extraordinaire Mike Rowe has a thing called Mike Rowe Works. And uh, Mike is a big proponent of uh, not necessarily having to go to college to learn these things and get that degree and pay that huge amount of money you're going to pay and be saddled with a huge uh, payment plan. So the idea is that certain skills are best left uh, through the old method of an apprenticeship where you learn what you're doing. It's like when I got into radio. You know, you don't really go to radio school to be on the radio. You go to radio to be on the radio. So it could be the same thing. It just has to be recognized. Jason. 13 years, I guess, no, 14, 13, something like that in business. I've never been hired on the basis of, of my degrees. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a non-starter. 
Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that's been my experience, too. It's what you know how to do and what you can prove you know how to do. I mean, in the video production and things like that, show me the last work you did, and that'll tell me more about you than any degree on the wall. On the other hand, I will say that I had to visit the doctor a few days ago, and uh, see that certificate on the wall from a noted medical school was a kind of a comforting thing. So I think there's some areas where it's still the the traditional education system is kind of a, an absolute, and others where it's definitely not. Courtney? Yeah, you have to also be careful. There have been, over the years, a number of tech schools that offer you just a certificate. They're not really college equivalents uh, that offer you a certificate and and offer and say, you, you know, they will provide uh, links to employment or will get you a job. But most of them haven't gotten people jobs and have been sued out of existence. So be careful about the tech schools that uh, advertise that they will uh, place you into a job if you complete their school, because there's a whole lot of scams out there that are offering that. Next question. James Babbitt from San Diego, California, has a question. Will Blackmagic Design release new ATEMs soon? And which ATEM Mini has the best features and value? Jesse Kessler, what's your opinion? I think we always assume that Blackmagic is working on something in their ATEM line. I don't know when it'll come out. But as for what, what's the best uh, ATEM Mini is uh, ISO. Whether you get the 4-in or 8-in, the, the Mini or Extreme, the ISO has absolutely changed everything about how we produce pretty much all of our content in-house. Alex. Yeah, I think that the um, my favorite one is actually the ISO Extreme SDI because it has four outputs. <laughs> like it's like it, and so it's a little inconvenient because we have a lot of stuff that's HDMI and SDI. I mean, I have an HDMI one sitting on my desktop right now, but in general, I would say that the that the SDI version because it has the four outputs is, is a is has a lot of advantages to it. It is. Um, you can get a lot more I.O. for just a little bit more money in the 1ME, but I don't believe the 1ME has a super source, which the ISO does. So that's, and the super source does make a big difference in in adding value to what you're doing. So it's kind of a, it's still hard. There's a lot of, uh, it kind of feels like the, it's becoming, like it feels like the 90s with Apple where there's so many different versions of, of them. There were so many different versions of the Mac that we could barely figure out which ones we should buy. Uh, and, and Blackmagic has a lot of solutions um, in the A10 line. But I think that the one that I'm, that that of all the ones that I've bought in the last, you know, three or four years, uh, the one that gets the most use or is the most all around, I mean, Obviously, the best one is the Constellation, <laughs> but, but that one's really expensive, and that's what we, this show is running on a Constellation. But as a home environment, um, I would say that the, the most convenient one for home environment is the HDMI version of the Extreme, um, the one that has the, but the four outputs on the SDI version are pretty useful. Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Alex. The SDI just makes it more secure and um, more convenient, more video-like. Um, I'd like a lot less buttons and a T-bar. Thank you. I can't get can't release your idea of a T bar. Good uh, guy. Yeah, I'm not sure when the next release is going to happen, but I'm really excited about the SRT implementation on the output. So, the Web Presenter 4K will do uh, SRT with H.265, which slashes that uh, bandwidth requirement in half. And we've got YouTube in beta with SRT, so. The future is very exciting because we'll be able to get out of locations at maybe 1.5 megabit, whereas before we could we couldn't uh, you know uh, have a, a a nice looking image without uh, 
having to downscale to SD or, or 640 by 360, you know, size pixels. So, and then REST API, that's the other thing I'm hoping for, which we'll see. Fingers crossed. Remember, everybody, your questions drive this show. So you can put them in all during the show. You can put them in before the show. You can put them in the night before. And you can use this QR code uh, that's appearing on the screen right over here right now to shoot it on your phone or something like that. Get a question in or you can punch in askofficehours.com or you can use our standard Mukana system. But regardless, please put your questions in. Use the voting system to vote them up and down. The ones with the most votes we get to more rapidly and spend more time on. So thanks for playing. You really do control what this show does every day, and we appreciate your time to do that. Let's move to the next question. I have a question. Uh, anyone have any interesting stories about the emergency test on all phones yesterday? Ooh, interesting question. We all heard it. At least I assume everybody heard it. Uh, Courtney, let's start with you. How did it well, go for you? That's the interesting thing about my response is I didn't hear it. And I had my phone on me, but I was in vibrate mode. And I'm thinking I may have, at the time it came in, I may have been plugged into my car via USB over Android Auto. And later I pulled my phone up and I saw that it had occurred. It had the warning was full screen, but I never heard it. It's going off now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, wait. That's just me. Uh, sorry. Sorry about that. Bug. I hope they fix that bug in the next version of A10, the last question. But, yeah, so I didn't hear it. Which So that may be a chink in the armor of that notification. So if we're under a nuclear attack and I'm in my car plugged into Android Auto, I may never know it. Oh, dear. That would be not, not, not sensible. Uh, Mitchell, thoughts? I slept through it. Didn't hear it. Didn't know if it actually happened, <laughs> but it was on the screen afterwards. I, I knew it was coming. I had spent two days. I told my wife about it. I reminded her in the morning, and still when it happened, it shocked me, and I joked and said, what, what is that? Oh, that's what it is. So I heard it. It came through, I think, for most people. Hopefully it was a good test. I mean, obviously people have gone away from radio and television being their primary means of communication. Everybody is now connected. Uh, most everybody is connected via cell phones or mobile devices, so... Um, checking out, architecting and checking out a system that can do uh, public broadcast of that nature just seems sensible to me. So I'm, I'm glad they're testing it. Uh, next question. And it's from Brody Hefner in New York City. Please comment on the interesting video and audio features of the Pixel 8. 4K 68HDR processing in the cloud, audio magic eraser that isolates noise into layers, night sight, etc., and it's on a uh, link there that he's uh, mentioning 34 minutes into the program. Mr. Preto is going to help us out here. John? Thanks for posting this. I, I enjoy this. I'm not an Android guy, but I like watching new stuff. And they, they made some interesting announcements with this phone. They, they, they came out with the Blade Runner zoom and enhance feature. Zoom into Sector 32. Remember that scene in Blade Runner? <laughs> They're offering that as a feature. Uh, they've got some interesting... Um, LLM model in the phone. So it's going to be the first phone with a local LLM model built into the phone, which is interesting. And then it's got some interesting camera um, uh, computational uh, photography stuff that they're doing there. So good for Google. Audio magic eraser. It sounds intriguing. Uh, Jason, what say you? Ah, for once, I finally get to say this. Android iPhone has had the grid control for a very long time. <laughs> Courtney. 
And am I imagining things, or was it, maybe it was the iPhone, that has, it now does uh, temperature sensing so that you can actually take the temperature of a surface by pointing at the camera at it. So it has some type of infrared thermometer built into it, which is very handy to, you know, troubleshoot equipment, things like that. It doesn't, I don't think it gives you a visual representation like forward-looking infrared, but it, I think it does give you a temperature readout so you could... Uh, they haven't gotten it approved by for medical use yet, so you could take someone's temperature by just pointing the camera at them. Hmm, that's interesting. I would think that would be something. I know um, Light Meter, which is one of the apps I have on my phone, does a reasonably good job of reading uh, Kelvin temperatures of lighting and things like that, so it wouldn't be too big a leap for them to go to actual ambient temperatures out there. I'll keep my eye open for that. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, wants to know, thoughts on your YouTube auto-generated live captions? Are they poor quality? Jesse. Compared to what you can generate in Premiere and Resolve, they are, you could call them poor quality, but for what you pay, they are incredible quality. Yeah, I've been surprised. You know, I've, I do a lot of work, and a lot of that work is required to have captions. So I've been in the kind of auto-generated caption space for a good little time. Uh, I use particular tools, uh, Simon Says and things like that, to toss up audio recordings of the videos that I'm making and get them translated up in the cloud and bring them back down to allow for standard closed captioning for uh, ADA compliance and things like that. The system is pretty robust up there. The tools are pretty robust. Uh, I have known from the early days that YouTube auto-generates a lot of those. And so the question when you're talking about poor quality is, are you talking about the translation accuracy, which is one factor of this, or are you talking about the display of captions and the ability to move them around as you like. Some types of captions, particularly the ones that are mandated by the FCC and other things, um, have very strict, rigid things about um, how you can format them so that they fit into their system. A lot of the people that I work with, art directors and things like that, say, can we get rid of those and can we put up, uh, can we supplant them with better looking, more highly designed captions? That becomes a whole nother question. Alex, I'm going to toss it to you. What do you, what do you think? You know, I think that in the, in the land of getting uh, good enough you know, to understand what's going on, I think that YouTube does a great job. And I think it's a huge service that they have uh, to, to, to make these things um, more available automatically. But definitely, um, there's a lot of the, the large language model, the Whisper, you know, Mac Whisper and Whisper-based um, systems that are doing incredible jobs at doing this. And I, I agree um, with Jesse compared to um, the you know, Premiere and, and um, Resolve both have really good engines that that were that are kind of surprisingly effective at what they at what they do. So um, I would definitely take a look at those. But but you can get pretty far. The other thing to remember is that th that's just an SRT file. So if you see specific uh, issues with a YouTube version, you can go to that file. You can download the SRT. You can edit it and put it back up again. It's just a text file. So um, so you can fix things specifically that that have been auto generated by YouTube. And I know a lot of people who who will do that to get the transcript. The cheapest way to get the transcript is let YouTube do its thing. Wait pull down the SRT and there's your transcript. There you go. Insider tip. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, thanks to Fenwick, I'm considering buying SoundDesk. Would it be better to buy the Mac App Store version or buy directly from Loud Lab? Ah, I'm sorry Chris isn't here. Alex, stand in yeah. and tell us. So 
my recommendation with some of these ones, especially ones that dig a little deeper into the OS, is to get to buy it directly. So um, I don't know this for sure whether Loud Lab is different, but remember when you buy a, a, some of these apps, uh, and I buy most of my apps through the App Store, so that's how I buy most apps. So it's not, but when they're digging into your o OS, sometimes the, the sandbox um, requirements that are required for a Mac app to be in the App Store um, can limit what they can actually get done. The publishing process also slows down how fast they can iterate sometimes. And so so it's actually, um, and Chris may have a better uh, answer for me uh, specifically with Loud Lab, but I would say in general, when it comes to things that are, um, when it comes to situations where you're digging into the um, uh, into the OS to get, do, to do routing and so on and so forth, I think strongly about buying the apps directly from the, from the company. Courtney. And you might save 30% by buying it directly from the company because you won't be paying the Apple tax. That's true of uh, YouTube Premium. If you buy YouTube Premium from the App Store, uh, I mean from Apple's App Store, you're going to pay 30% more for it every month than you do if you buy it directly and sideload it into your iPhone. Yeah, I, you know, what Alex said resonates for me as well, which is that um, it's a balance. There are some things I go direct, and particularly things that are complex, and I want to maybe uh, have a more direct relationship with the company because it's something that's maybe part of my business is built on or something like that. I will say that the fact that Apple's App Store is constantly rolling out updates and making that easy, and I can sit down once a week or every two weeks or once a month and just say, update all my apps, I'm between projects, and have it just ripple through my entire App Store library and bring anything up to date that needs to be brought up to date is a big plus for me. It's a convenience thing. So that's what I do most often. But Alex, thoughts? Addition? And I would say that... <laughs> I would never build an app that would re that would require me to sell it directly. So I would like I, I to me the only place to put the apps is the app store because you know personally because it's just too much trouble to to you know to deal with you know all the things I used to you know I've sold millions of dollars of software <clears throat> you know directly and um, and I would never go back to that <laughs> like so so that's the big reason I got out of it not having to manage the serial numbers not having to manage the downloads not having to manage you know all those things are a uh, huge value and and again it's um, you know for a co small company like this it might be 15% more rather than 30% just because they're not gonna I doubt that they're selling more than a million dollars of, of sound lab but I could be wrong let's go to the next question Dan Huber from Erie, Pennsylvania. Has anyone had an issue with Stream Deck buttons just deleting? My profiles are there, but programmed buttons are gone. Jason, do you have any experience with this? I don't have any direct experience, um, but I have read about it. So if you're on Windows, it's um, C colon slash user slash your username slash app data slash roaming slash Elgato slash Stream Deck slash backup and that, that'll have all your Stream Deck profiles and you should be looking at that for any computer that you plug the Stream Deck into. Mac OS, it's slash users slash your username, library application support and then uh, Elgato backup. Google that and, um, and see if you can restore them. Uh, sometimes I think these computers are are doing so much for us that it, I continually forget how much is going on behind the scenes that have to be precisely correct with all the correct errors in there for the whole thing to run. Uh, so good luck. Hopefully, Dan, that helps you in a right direction. And maybe if you didn't get all that and write it down while Jason was saying it, ping him and I'm sure he'll be happy to send you a link to that. Let's go on to the next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Are there any gotchas to be aware of when using Teradek Bolt wireless camera transmitter and receive units? Guy. Yeah, it depends on which model that you're talking about. And this is one of those uh, devices where I'd say rent and definitely call a reseller to see uh, what your environment looks like and explain to them how many feet away that you're going to be because you might want to have multiple receivers. So the higher end ones will have four, six, or even uh, unlimited numbers at the $15,000 range. You could have unlimited receivers. So in case somebody gets behind something and your your reception gets blocked, it could hop automatically or you just see the feed coming through garbled and you can just your switch operator can just bounce over to the, the clean, the, the better of the feeds. Um, yeah, get that uh, transmitter up high, get that receiver up high. If your uh, transmitter's on the camera, uh, you're, you're, you're pretty much there at eye level. The other thing is um, power. Make sure that you have power to the units and you don't run out of, uh, out of juice. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, that's, that's basically all I've got on those. Alex. Rent ahead um, with, you know, rent is a day extra. Um, the, 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 fun, the, the, challenge with the bolt sometimes is getting the pairing to work especially if you have rental units because people put them into weird states and so um we've had trouble so we've had trouble with getting them on the day of the event um and you know they'll get delivered in the morning for a a two o'clock event and we'll spend the entire time trying to get them and talking to folks and trying to get that done so if you're renting them you just want to get them the day before make sure that you have um time to make sure that they're there and time to talk to someone about it because um, they have been, we have found that the bolts specifically are a little, I love the bolts. I have two, two sitting right here. <laughs> so, so I love the bolts, but they can be, when you don't, when you're in a rental units, um, we have found that they can be a little quirky and it's not because of the hardware as much as the hardware is very flexible and people who rented it before you, you don't know exactly what state they put them in and um, you can't, it's hard to get them back to a um, even when you reset them, it's hard to get them back to a state. Um, someone can put them into a state that's hard to recover from. And Courtney. Yeah, and if you're using wireless audio hops to get to your camera as well, to feed audio into your camera so that you've got a receiver, a wireless receiver mounted on the camera as well, and that camera is using one of the Bolt or other uh, wireless transmitters, make sure you move that receiver for your audio. It'll Try and get it at least a foot away from the antennas on the bolt because the RF that's coming out of that, even if you're on a different frequency, can swamp the receiver in your wireless mic receiver and it'll reduce its sensitivity and you'll get all kinds of dropouts and things. So there's something to look out for. And make sure you're on a different frequency because if that bolt is on 2.4 gigahertz or, or 5 gigahertz and your receiver is in the same frequency band, that interference is going to be much worse. Thanks, Courtney. Uh, I mentioned it before, but I will mention it again. If you have questions, this is a great time to put them in. I think we're going to have room for a few more today before we get to the top of our hour and our second hour topic, which, as those of you who are here for the beginning of the show know, is about some of the new iPhone capabilities in terms of its video and camera system. So we'll be talking about that in our second hour. But right now, if you have additional first hour questions, use the QR code over here. If you'd like to just put them into the system or use the Mocana regular thing. And as always, your votes do count. Thank you for your questions. Without them, this show doesn't continue to do what it does, and we like doing it. So thank you. Let's move on to the next question. Samuel Nordvik from Norway asked, what would be the advantages of having a REST API on the ATEM versus the current Blackmagic Design API that can be accessed with uh, tools like Companion? Guy Cochran's going to help us out, Guy. 
Yeah, I'm not sure of the entire dynamics of the developer path. I just know that it was something that was asked for and that uh, should be coming here shortly. And it will just make it easier for us to get to these devices from from afar. So that's the reason. Alex, what say you? It's a lot more standardized. So REST, uh, REST access means that if you know how to do REST commands, you can get to it. You don't have to. Oops, I just hit a button that made my... Whoa, that's an interesting thing. It's not the power still there. You've angered I hit the a gods of electricity. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what you saw there was the shortcut. The shortcut on my phone. I was moving some something around. Is to turn all the lights off. The shortcut on my watch is to turn them all on. And I took my phone out of a case because I wanted to show something with the iPhone, and I slipped against that. So maybe that's not the best action button behavior. <laughs> anyway, so um, anyway, so that's that's what happened there. Um, so the, the thing with the rest stage. command. <laughs> yeah, the rest command. Uh, the, uh, the 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 main thing is is that you don't have to deal with the whole API. You don't have to deal with all of the things that we require to build an interface to it. Sure, you can use Companion, but any developer that understands REST, if there was a REST control over the ATEM like there now is over the phone, um, can simply use something like Postman or other things that um, allow them to access all of those controls. Now, hopefully we get if we got that we would get more controls over the atem than what the api currently does uh, what we see with uh, mix effect pro is something that adam figured out on his own that's not part of the api <laughs> so so that's the and so um you know that's 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 some genius uh, work that is hard labor to figure out exactly what's happening there. Um, the same way that the um, the folks at, at Scarhoy figured out how to do a lot of those controls through Wireshark. You know, so so the thing is, is that that's, that's what they had to do to make that actually happen. So with REST, the REST API, what would be great is for the, the ATEM to be completely exposed so that we could have the control, the same control that we see with from Scarhoy's or from MixEffect Pro, but through uh, direct REST commands. Interesting. Uh, Mitchell Hill. It time. might be useful to some of us, me included, uh, what a REST command is. Somebody could explain that. Yeah, th this is a, I mean, I'm not the most, the biggest expert, but basically REST commands are web, are web commands that will allow you to um, uh, basically make calls, you know, and, and, and set up, you know, processes. Um, so many, many things, like for instance, our FSHDRs are all REST. And so um, these are, um, what it allows you to do is, um, make requests and change all the settings and everything else um, through an, through an internet-based appliance uh, with simple, rel relatively simple commands within your code, um, as opposed to having to build a piece of software that would do it or or an interface. It's it's a, I mean, the way I would equate it is it's another thing that's kind of like OSC in some ways, but it's but it's a much more generalized one that works across many 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 pieces of hardware. Most hardware that we get now that's professional level has some REST access, REST API access so that we can actually um, get to those. And it, it's a more generalized skill set, which would make it a lot easier to work with. Jason, you had some thoughts? I'll try to be succinct. So uh, REST is, is, a, is a style of programming that, um, that allows you to set constraints very quickly for, for um, web-based interfaces. And on the basis of that, it turns out it works really, really well for simple devices or even complex devices. So think about AirPrint. The way that AirPrint works is incredible because you don't have to download a driver. That's because... Um, the, yeah, Unix, CUPS, the CUPS protocol, did all of the the necessary things such that if a if a CUPS protocol compliant printer is available on a network, your iPhone just needs to know how to speak CUPS. Think of REST kind of like that. 
So it's kind of a sub-easier translation language to the big application programming interface, the API, uh, underneath that would normally be where you'd have to talk to the thing to get it to do things. But this is a, a simpler abstraction. Am I kind of in the general vicinity for that, Jason? Yeah, more or less. Okay, thanks. Trying to wrap my head around new concepts. That's part of the fun of office hours. I love this. Let's go on to the next question. And it's from Jesse Kester in Glendale, California. I'd never buy a used cell phone because the battery life would be uncertain. What's the word on electric cars? Should we assume that after a year or two of regular use, we'll have to replace the entire battery? Courtney, have you looked into this? Yes, I have. I have a plug-in hybrid, and the warranty, I have a Kia, and uh, the warranty on plug-in hybrids and the all-electric Kias is uh, 100,000 miles or 10 years, and that includes the battery. So if your battery hasn't degraded past the point that it's warrantied, which there's a certain percent of degradation over over a number of years, but it still will run, and still it may not have quite as much range at the end of that 10-year warranty, but uh, no, you don't have to replace the batteries every two years or so like you do on your phone uh, their warranty most most manufacturers warranty the batteries for uh, seven to ten years so you well that explains why you don't have to run your car on ten thousand double a's that are rechargeables that's good uh court chris Fenway. they actually are ten thousand double a's that are rechargeable that's what <laughs> makes up really? the battery oh dear it's that's not too far from the truth bill i think i think given the just the recycle, uh, not recycle, but the recharge uh, process. I think 100,000 miles or 10 years is about right. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that put a lot more than that on in 10 years in a vehicle, if, if it even lasts 10 years. Uh, that's maybe half of what I think a lot of people put, a lot of people I know, I should say, there's a lot of different people that drive their cars differently. Um, I think that the resale capabilities of battery cars is yet to be seen. I don't think, you know, the modern era of battery cars are not really old enough that a lot of people are trying to off them or, or buy used ones. But I think that, I think that, um, I don't know that there's going to be as much resale value. Yes, you can change the battery pack out. We had to do it on my stepdaughter's hybrid. It's not a full battery car, but, um, uh, there are companies that are, you know, like aftermarket third-party battery replacement facilities, uh, and we had to do it on her her hybrid because she was literally just driving down the road all dumb and happy. It was a great day, and all of a sudden, just boom, it was done. It was just done. It wasn't going to work at all. Uh, and it was, you know, it was like $2,500, $3,000 to replace the battery on her hybrid, and she was not ready to do that. I had to step in and pockets uh, help her with that thing uh but yeah i i wouldn't buy a used tesla i think that's a a, a a fool's errand i wouldn't do that at all wow this whole thing has my mind reeling do i have to specify that i want a car based on rechargeable d cells rather than a car car based on rechargeable triple a's you should look uh, into Courtney. it Bill. it's quite interesting there really are a bunch of you know they are a bunch of cells of the size of, of but they're, well, they're yeah. 3102s oh, you know they're the slightly yeah. larger than interesting there's a whole headlights. bunch of them in the floor of a tesla a whole bunch right fascinating yeah, yeah i uh, learned something um, courtney yeah, I was going to point out that uh, Tesla has a program that recycles the Tesla batteries and puts them in power walls. So they pull the 
pull the old batteries out of the old Teslas or wrecked Teslas where the battery may not be damaged very much or consumed very much, and they put them into power walls. Uh, they can't put them in a new car, but uh, they can recycle them, and they do that with used uh, Teslas that they have to replace the battery on for some other reason, you know, the controller, et cetera. All right, I look back up, and we have more questions than we had before. Well, so well, let's one, one quick thing, Bill, these. if I can. Real quick. You know, there's a guy Real on quick. YouTube named Yehu Garcia, J-E-H-U. Uh, he used to make camera rigs. Um, Jag 35, I think, was his company, uh, the orange camera rigs. And toward the end of the camera rig DSLR movement... Oops, you dropped out for me. Is it for everybody else or is it you're just muted me? on? Uh, yeah, you're mute. Ah, I'm sorry. All right, Never we got to move ahead. on. We've got a lot of questions to get through here. So, so let's, let's go to the next question. Next question for Ronnie Hofsoy from Tromso, Norway. Where and how to get into the YouTube SRT beta program? Guy, help us out. This is one of those things where watching the show and then. Uh, listening and subscribing to the after hours alerts when one of the times we had one of the gentlemen from youtube in after hours giving us kind of a rundown of what was coming up and he offered up um beta access so i was one of the ones that was paying attention and jumped jumped on that beta and uh, i got it back in january and i was testing it with obs 27 when it first hit i live streamed from ces uh, along with that same disaster group modem and was able to get out with a super um low we, we only were getting a, a couple megabits so i was able to get out a signal the other way is if you're a hardware manufacturer so there's two betas uh the first one that i talked about was uh through somebody inside youtube the second one if you're a hardware manufacturer there is a a way to sign up so if somebody's listening that's a hardware manufacturer or an influencer there's another way uh ping me on discord and i'll see if i can uh, put you in touch with the people that uh, can approve that next question Samuel Norvig from Norway asking, why would you want to cut a show at a T-bar, or is it just nostalgic, Mitchell? Mitchell, you've asked yourself the question, so answer it very quickly. Why would you want to cut a show on a mixer with a T-bar? It's tactile. I like that. Okay. You know, people have the tools and they use them the way they want to use them. This is one of those things where everybody I've ever known who's a uh, TD or a director has their own style. For some, that's as important as a race car driver from the dirt circuits having a, you know, a really good four-speed shifter to do what they want to do. You can't convince them, convince them to change. It's just the way things are sometimes. We're going to dive through these pretty quick. So let's get to the next question. Next question in from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. I read the Las Vegas Sphere tech uses hockey puck-sized LEDs placed to what appear at approximately 8 to 12-inch centers. Is this for the exterior projections only? Any good resources showing more about this tech? It's fascinating. John Preto, you're a Las Vegas native. What have you heard about what's going on on the outside of the sphere? It's a, it's a good description of the exterior. I put a great video explaining all this in Mikana chat. There you go. Excellent. Let's get on to our next question. Funsak Dorje from Dharamshala, India. Hi, panels. Do you use your own audio system when going for a live streaming gig, or do you use the already existing audio system in the auditorium? What does the panel advise? Uh, Alex, start us off here. Uh, I will do everything I can do to avoid using the <laughs> mixer in the in the space. I almost always want to get either splits or other things away from that you know that process. So uh, you know I don't um, uh, you know I, I try not to use their their audio. Sometimes you don't have a choice. I mean that's where your main mics are going, um, and and that is another thing to kind of take a look at. But the um, 
uh, the yeah. So I think that that's the try to avoid it. If you are going to get that, what you also want to do if you're going to do the stream is you really want an aux out with that with the program send, um, and you don't want to be using you know if, if they've got oftentimes you'll be in an event like this and they may have some kind of malt box that's going out. That's a disaster typically. And so really when you want to get upstream from that that malt box um, where everybody else is plugging things into it, um, it's a temptation to use it because it's easy and it's already available, but it's worth having the extra conversations that are required to make that actually happen. Jesse, real quick. Typically we interface with the location liaison and our client who's actually hiring us to do the event. Uh, if the location liaison gives us permission to use our own sound system, but the client can't afford it, we will seriously consider eating that cost because the control it affords us and the ability it gives us to do a better job is uh, more valuable than money usually. Courtney. Yeah, and check with the venue because a lot of times if it's a union venue, you will not be allowed to touch the uh, system or stick any of your equipment in line and they, they will have a union mixer or technician there who has to run all of the equipment. Yeah, I've come across, I, nothing makes me happier than be able to get channel inserts which go in pre-fade and just pull the signal right off. They can still do what they want to do, but now on my side I can do whatever I want to do. That to me is the best of all worlds, but as everybody has said, it's not always possible. Let's get to the next question. Craig Kadoki, Toronto, Canada. Is there any scanning or coordination software or hardware for wireless video transmission like there is for wireless mics? Craig, I have never seen anyone doing that in a facility. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And I would imagine that on big tech scrums like massive news conferences and things like that, the wireless coordinator may handle both video and audio and be very careful about that. Alex, you've worked in bigger things than I have. What say you? Yeah, at the, at the very highest level of, of some of these connections, you, you definitely have some resources to look at those. Now, you can generally do something kind of like an RF Explorer that was going to give you an overall idea of what the RF is, is looking like. Now, that's not going to handle a lot of the lower end um, uh, transmission signals that are using the 5 gig or 6 gig or 2.4 gig or whatever. But if on the higher end ones that are using, basically they're using licensed frequencies um, that, that they know what they're, what they have there. Um, and so the, when you're talking about like football or NASCAR or, or those types of things, the, they're not part, they're not really looking for frequencies because they have licensed frequencies that no one else is allowed to use. Uh, and they can definitely scan for those frequencies to know whether um, those frequencies are being encumbered by somebody else. And usually they'll go find them <laughs> because it, it is illegal for them to use the, 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 the signals that have been licensed um, specifically for these providers. So, um, so there's definitely it, at the lower end, there's not really a great way to do that. In my opinion, um, at the higher end, uh, when you start talking about RF, um, there's definitely ways to go after it, but it's mostly after enforcing licensed signals um, that, that should be available. And the reason they're licensed is specifically to keep people out of that. And Courtney. Yeah, and even if you do an RF spectrum scan with an app on your phone or if you have a receiver that will do that, you know, uh, a software, a radio that you plug into your laptop, uh, a lot of digital transmission is software hopping, which is frequency hopping. So it chops from frequency to frequency many times a second sometimes. So, uh, you know, when you see it, uh, see a scan, it may not be telling you the truth because frequency hopping equipment may end up and cause distortion in the band you end up using. Let's go to the next question. From Courtney Gooden, who just spoke uh, in Hollywood, California, I came across this article on the new Pixel 8 phone that demonstrates the temperature sensor. Can you tell me what's wrong with this demo? Uh, Courtney, take it away. 
Uh, yeah, I saw this picture, uh, and this is them demonstrating the temperature sensor to uh, read out the temperature of your drink. Can you tell what's wrong with that picture? It shows the drink as being 88.1 degrees Fahrenheit, and ice water, as you know, should not be 88.1 percent. It's uh, very warm ice degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, I'd say uh, the uh, <laughs> the manager who created that picture for uh, CNET, I think, uh, should be uh, dismissed. Yeah, uh, a little embarrassed. Well, whatever. Hopefully, these new capabilities coming out in smartphones make it better and better for all of us who own them. Uh, but that looks like it's qu not quite ready for prime time. Let's go to our next question. Here comes a QR code question from Martin in London, UK. I'd appreciate your insights on Canon's PTZ camera series, especially the more budget-friendly CRN300 model for a solo live streamer. Do you reckon that using two PTZ cameras alongside a standard camcorder for wide shot is a good enough for a small panel? Jesse, give us your thoughts. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It would be good enough for a small panel, and it would certainly be a fine camera for a solo streamer as well. What I'd be careful about with what you just described is uh, what, what I wouldn't want to do is have the PTZs in the wide shot, so every time you cut to the wide, you're rearranging all the PTZs at the same time to get the next shot, because it, it is just too plausible that the audience would be waiting for the wides, watching the PTZs go crazy, and then um, cutting back into the, to the close-up shots. I, I would keep the PTZs out of your wide. That's a good bit of advice, I think. Alex? Yeah, oftentimes if the PTZs are, it depends on the color of the PTZs and everything else. We put them in front of curtains a lot and you don't really get to see them very much, especially if you drape over things. And so um, a lot of times what we what we have here is if you have a stage um, that's, that's here, um, we will put the PTZs oftentimes just to, to Jesse's point, just a little outside on either side here. Um, this means that the, the generally the wide shot is going to just grab the stage and they'll be outside of that shot. Um, but the also they um, even if you're on, if you're on any wider than that, typically you're not going to notice them very much, especially if they're moving or not. They're really small in a wider shot, so you just want to give them a little bit of space. They are much less; they'll gather much less uh, attention than a. Um, uh, than a person up there, though. So the P PTZs work really, really great there. Then what we do is we build them with um, quadrants in their auto. So we build them with four, you know, typically four quadrants or on, on a larger audience, eight quadrant or eight segments in, for each one of them. So you can just push the number, you get close enough to the person asking the question quickly, and then you're able to, you know, find them there. And that, that has worked uh, really well for us. Excellent. Well, that get, we're getting close to the top of the hour here, and that means we're getting close to our transition into our second hour topic, which today is going to be iPhone video. Um, just remember that as of today, that, you know, I was looking on the, as I was getting ready for today's show, 1,290 shows daily, haven't missed a single one. And what Alex started here three years ago plus has been amazing. We've covered so much of the production arts, audio, video, IP, compute, streaming live to the web, so many other topics. It's possible to list them all here. And I wanted to just take a second as we're getting ready for the second hour just to remind everybody that we have got archives of all of that on the website, including our coverage of 
events like NAB, Cinegear, and IBC. And very shortly, we'll be coming to you live from New York for NAB East and the AES, the Audio Engineering Society's annual gathering. So lots to look forward here. If you go to the website, you can scroll down through just a smattering of the highlights of our three years doing this. It's also searchable. So you can go back and look at the things we've been doing for a long time. It's got links for how you can become more involved with the show, should that interest you. And there's a lot to find there. That's the bottom line. Friday's show tomorrow, we are going to be talking about cable management, one of the always more interesting topics that we deal with here. Um, you know, I know sometimes we wish all the world was just wireless and, and things that used to take a lot of infrastructure and building out have moved on and a lot of things um are easier because you can just put two devices up, they talk to each other, do the handshake, and then they're moving along. But we still need a lot of cabling. We have to move power and data around. So we'll discuss how to select cables, store cables, run cables effectively, all the rest of that. Um, also, don't forget that this show comes to you every single day through a huge and impressive group of volunteers. We're going to talk about it a little at the end of the show, but I also just wanted to, to stop here in the middle of the show and just remind everybody of how what a village this show brings together every day to make this happen. It's very impressive. So we're going to hold here and come back in just a second. Welcome back to our second hour. It's great to have you here. Today we are talking iPhone, iPhone 15 Pro, all of its new video capabilities. Apple announced the new iPhone 15 series not too long ago, and among the notable changes is that Apple has finally changed from the lightning port that were used by all the iPhones forever in favor of USB-C connectivity, and gained along with that a new era, hopefully, for storage and connectivity options for shooting video inside the Apple ecosystem. I also understand that this also means you'll be able to attach larger storage systems like NVMe drives and things like that. So people who are worried about filling up their phones if they're shooting particularly in higher res formats uh, and running out of space may have a back-end repository and be able to shoot longer, more complex pieces, have more flexibility in terms of getting footage in and out of the phone. So a lot of positive changes. Um, the other big news is that the highest end model, the iPhone 15 Pro Max, has a new periscopic camera in that allows extended zoom range. Now, I have read some reports that say if you get out at the end of its zoom range, you don't necessarily get all the resolution that the chip itself promises. Maybe Alex or others will talk about that today as we go through this. But we're here today to help you unpack all the new data. So we're going to start with Alex, who I understand has recently gotten and started testing an iPhone Pro. 15 max alex what's been happening so far what do you think well i think it's it's, it's pretty impressive <laughs> you know so uh you know i i think that uh i, I don't know if people if you, someone can ask the question and people have to vote the question up but i have a video of me talking about the 3gs that was that 15 years ago if you guys want to see it but someone's <laughs> got to put the question in i'm not going to just show it to you if, if someone doesn't do that but i found it i was looking for something else and it popped up and i was like oh there i am much thinner and much darker hair uh, 15 years ago talking about um, why I was excited about the 3GS, why I picked it up. I actually, it's the most viewed video I've ever <laughs> made. It was like 2 million views. Anyway, um, the, um, but uh, uh, anyway, so the, um, uh, if someone wants to see that, I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up here real quickly. But the uh, the thing that we we saw back then, 15 years ago, was that, you know, wow, this is a really great small little um 
package, and I think we could turn this into a phone, and the, the vision that we had of it, I think this is the first phone that really um, has done that, you know, like really turned it over. There's a lot of there's a lot of things about it that they've added. Of course, you know, the next one will be <clears throat> better, but what you're really looking at is a great overall phone that you can do an awful lot of work with. Um, the USB-C works really well. I'll, I'll show you some clips from stuff that I shot um, that is... Um, that was shot directly to USB-C. Um, so a quick overview of some of the features that we're looking at. Uh, spatial uh, video, which isn't available yet, but will be available later in the year, is going to allow you to shoot in stereo um, on your camera. Um, but it also supports log. It also has support for ACES. Um, you know, so the um, uh, so there's a lot of professional tools being built into it. There's a professional group inside of Apple that is, you know, folks from the industry um, that are, um, that are, um, you know, constantly looking at how do we make Apple products closer to the industry work. And you, you can definitely see their fingerprints you know, on, on this process um, that it's, it is a, you know, the, the ability to record up to Apple ProRes 4444 on a phone is kind of an amazing um, process there. Um, I have uh, successfully done 4K60 in log um, in Apple ProRes uh, to a drive. So what's funny is, is if you turn it above Apple, if you're at 4K60 instead of 4K30 and you go up, it says, hey, you need a drive. Then you think, oh, well, how am I going to get the drive to integrate? Of course, this is Apple. So when you plug in your USB-C and you're set to something that will need it, it immediately, the, the drive just shows up. It just, it just says USB-C connection on it inside the Apple app. Um, the... Um, so it's, it is a, uh, um, a lot of the tools there. So being able to shoot log now, a lot of people are trying to probably trying to figure out what log is or why they should shoot it. And why does that make sense? I will tell you that, um, it does take a little bit more work to shoot log because it means you can't just share it immediately. <laughs> it's now in a format that you're going to need to color correct. Um, I will show you a little bit about how that works. Let me pull this over here. I'm going to pull this. And now I'm going into Resolve. I, I will find. I, I will say that it's going to be interesting. One of the things I'm really interested to see is um, what Apple does at its, um, uh, you know, at the at at the the summit, you know, and what what they talk about related to Final Cut. Because I will say that I opened up this stuff, and the Final Cut tools are pretty rudimentary when it comes to log. You can do some basic correction, but I, I was a little like, oh, I don't know if I can I can actually do much log work in, in Final Cut um, in its current state. But I, I feel like now they've put all these tools into the phone, something's got to give on the Summit side or on the Final Cut side um, to make that actually work. But if you look at, um, this is a um, this is a very uh, short clip. Let me, um, let's cut to this. Um, so here I am in Resolve here. And um, let's pop this up. So, uh, so here you can see this is all, this is shot in in, in log, um, and so and what I've done is this is a very hard shot to shoot specifically in linear because I've got the sun coming out of the um, out of the trees here that are that are there, and so that is the um, you know that's usually the kind of thing you don't want to shoot in a linear format um, is is a really really bright source with things in the shadows. Um, so now if I go to my uh, my color here you'll see though that i haven't clipped anything it's all there um so if i grab onto let's say um my uh color space transform drag it in here and i will tell you out of the gate that i'm not a colorist so i'm gonna do some basic stuff here but what i have to do 
um, what you're doing with a LUT or with a color transform is that you are saying, this is the source, this is where I'm coming from, and this is where I'm going to. Um, and so, because you're, you're setting that, that's the transform that you're, that you're applying here. So here, in this case, I'm saying I am coming from um, Rec 2020, and here I say input gamma is Apple log. So there it is. So there's the Apple log that it says, I'm, I, this is my, this is where I'm, I'm coming from. And now you'll see it got really dark here because it doesn't know where it's going to. Um, and in this case, I'm going to say I'm going to rec, uh, I'm going to go to rec 709 and I'm going to use um, the, uh, we'll say gamma 2.6. And you'll see it get a little brighter here. It's still a little darker now. It's going to get crushed a little bit going through my switcher as well. Um, but then from where from here, I can grab onto this. Now, normally I would do this in a separate node, but we'll just do it here. To, for, so you can see me start to bring this data up. And um, I can take this and push the blacks back down a little bit. Um, I can, uh, the gain right now is going over, you know, over to the top here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull it back a little bit here. So now I have... So that sun is all there now. Like I'm not clipping, I'm not clipping the sun. And again, going over Zoom, this is going to be really hard for you to see. This is not the Zoom is not was not designed for color correction. So, um, so, um, but what, but what I what you can see here as I work with this is I have a lot of um, latitude, and you'll notice in the in these um, in the RGB parade, you're not seeing straight lines <laughs> going across. There's a lot of data um, that, are, that is in that, in that environment. So um, being able to do that kind of shoot on your phone, it's kind of amazing. Um, I will say that I think that I've done a little bit, I, because I just got the new phone, I didn't put Filmic on it yet, but I've been looking at some of the stuff online. It does look like the curve that you get in the, I think that the curve that you're getting in Apple Pro or in the in law, Apple Log is superior to the Filmic Pros. It doesn't. It looks much more washed out in its natural state, but that generally means that it's protecting those highlights a little bit more um, effectively. So, so I think that the, um, uh, I, I think that that it, it's actually a pretty, um, pretty strong setup. So, log is one thing that you want to pay a lot of attention to if you're doing anything professional with your phone. If you decide I want to go out and, I will say I've been I, I've been shooting on video cameras of all size, shapes, and form, you know, for the last 20 years. And I will say that this is, uh, you can go out and shoot stuff that you could charge people for with this phone. <laughs> like, you know, now is it going to replace the Blackmagic cameras that I have? Is it going to replace the Aries that I, that I rent? Is it going to replace? Not, no, <laughs> it's not going to replace those things. Um, but you could, but you can definitely shoot very high quality footage that, competes with many things smaller than those. So if someone has a camera, for instance, that is at a, you know, I would, I would argue at a half inch chip or two thirds inch chip, like a standard broadcast camera, you're going to find that it's going to be hard to tell the difference between this phone. Now, what you don't have is some of the controls um, on the exterior of the, of the uh, device, but the quality of what's going into the camera is extremely high. Um, again, I'm not replacing it. I'm not replacing the Black Magics that I use for work, uh, or the Aries or the Venices that that I use for other for other shoots um, with an iPhone. But I will say that if I want to do pickup shots, um, and I do think that again, I could you could go out and shoot things for a client, and if they didn't see you shoot it, if they, the problem with phones and problem with equipment is is the client the, is the client there or not if they, if they say hey you're shooting with an iphone then then you may you may have a you may have an issue uh but if you if you if they saw the footage i think that they would have if they just saw the footage out of it and especially if your wider shots or other shots were intercut into it um you know we have to remember that when you're looking at uh when you're looking at like 
what, what do they call it? The, the drive thing where they're all singing in the cars. The chips on those on those cameras where they're in the in the cars singing. Um, I don't know what that's called. Sing along. The the Apple thing. The chips are not better than the iPhones. <laughs> on those little those little cameras. So GoPro? a lot of the stuff is. Some of them they were originally GoPros. I think they're now actually. Um, then they moved up to the Blackmagic Minis. Um, you know the, the micro micro studios um, that are in there. But th- this would be competitive. I, I you know I would. Uh, you know, and it's a very, very. This would be competitive with the older Blackmagic um, micros. I think. I mean, they're they're four thirds chip, but the the color science on them isn't. You know, on the older ones, the newer ones look great. I haven't gotten to use them yet. Um, so, but but so I think that there is um, the the phone gives you an awful lot that you can capture. And again, I don't think that the filmmakers and professional uh, videographers are really the target market here. It's really going to be people who are building educational material, corporate material, uh, YouTube material. This stuff is, it's impressive. Like, and you can, you could definitely shoot some, you know, very impressive footage, um, you know, with, uh, um, with, with what we have here. So, so I think that it's, it is a, uh, um, being able, but I would get your head around the, the one thing is storage. Um, you will go through an enormous amount of storage. I shot, uh, I shot a three-minute piece um, with my uh, of my daughter uh, in log, of course, because she was shooting. She was performing bass on a on a on a stage, and um, it was twenty-one gigs. <laughs> so so forth. So it's 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 definitely uh, going to suck up sort storage on your phone. Um, so I would definitely recommend it. I will say that that capturing from the uh, capturing the. Uh, hard drive capturing to the hard drive is very very fluid. A lot of us, the, one of the reasons we weren't using these phones for any kind of production in the past or any kind of pickup shots or anything else, was because getting big files off the phone was impossible. Like it was just like you, it was a no go. Um, being able to shoot directly to the drive, um, which I which I've done successfully here, um, this this clip that you just saw me show was shot directly to drive at 4K 60 um, in log. And then when I plugged it into uh, when I plugged it into my Mac, my Mac immediately came up and said, "Hey, do you want to put this in Photos?" Which I did. But it, it, the point is, is, it it knows what it saw there. It pulls it. it it'll it'll automatically want to import it. Um, but I don't need to. What you're saying, me do in the in the in this Resolve clip here. This is um, looking directly at the drive that was coming off of that came off my phone. So it literally just I plugged the drive in and loaded those clips directly from the drive, and it, and it, and off off we went. So um, it's a it's a pretty interesting thing. The the support for Asus means that it fits into the larger Asus workflow, which is um, the the Academy's color workflow, and um, and so that means that and and really I don't see filmmakers using iPhones as um, I don't see them, you know, replacing their Aries with iPhones. But what I do see is now, so for instance, someone in a, in a movie is shooting footage of somebody with a phone, like, in the, and you want to see that footage. I could see them capturing that footage and log on the phone and being able to convert that footage back to um, what they wanted to, you know, to pull that back in. Um, I also see people picking, doing pickup shots with it, you know, like a couple seconds here, a couple of seconds there. There's a lot of times we use smaller um, crash cameras that are a variety of sizes to to make that actually work. So, so I think that that it's a really, um, and again, the portability of it, no one's ever going to, uh, your home videos will never be the same. <laughs> I feel like, you know, looking at my, um, uh, looking at my grandfather, my grandfather shot all his home videos in the fifties 
with 16 millimeter. <laughs> so we had a 16 millimeter film and that stuff has held up for a very, very long time. And I feel like there's something about this, this footage is the first time I've seen it. Like this is for a home video, the first, the first thing where you start to see potentially archive quality, you know, of, of your footage from your iPhone. Um, so I think it's a, it's a pretty exciting, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty exciting phone, um, update, which is why I want to talk about it. We want to make sure everyone knew, hey, something's come up that's a lot different. And the things that are different are the log, the support for ASUS, the USB-C, and, and the 5X camera, which works um, pretty well as well. Nice. A lot of good, interesting things there. You know, just in my practice, it's been interesting. The last two years, I have gotten more iPhone uh, work than I have big camera work. And it has to do in part because my clients are interested in short form uh uh, promotional stuff that's generally going on to the web and things like that. But I was always astonished. I, I d did it the first time to go out and shoot an art walk for one of my larger clients. Um, and I came back. I had literally started that with the Blackmagic 6K. But after the first 10 minutes of this incredibly complex environment with people moving around and jostling, I realized I just couldn't shoot as well. So I ended up on my iPhone with things. Let me, I'm actually going to show a little bit of that. This is the second one I did for them. Uh, but this is the kind of imagery that was coming out of my iPhone just right on HDR uh, in terms of um, the way things worked. It was an amazingly easy, fast fluid way to go to an event that's happening in real time, get a lot of really good looking imagery really quick. I was able to use a monopod to get up these high shots and low shots. It's fast paced, but the quality of the, the imagery I just came back with and I said, my gosh, this is way easier than I've ever been able to shoot before. It is not perfect but it is certainly viewable. And the first time they saw the first one of these I did, the next thing you know, I'm doing all sorts of these and I'm getting a lot more interesting stuff. Um, oops, I made a mistake. I should not have hit that. I wanted to show you a little bit of um, nighttime work. We had to do some stuff at the Rady Shell, which is a new uh, concert venue that opened here in San Diego. And so I shot daytime. I also shot nighttime. And some of the last couple of shots you'll see here, just in terms of we're sponsoring this. We wanted you to know that we're involved in this. It's a great new facility. The daytime stuff came out really well, but it was the nighttime shot stuff that really caused my jaw to drop a little bit. And here in just a couple of shots, you'll see some. The sun is going down here. I'm just on the top of a very, very small rig. In fact, I didn't even take my larger monopod. I took the smaller one, and I'm getting this kind of coverage out of this with no additional lighting whatsoever. It was an amazing thing to be able to do these quick little videos that show a different side of an event that doesn't take the big crew, that you can just go out and and see all sorts of interesting things that you wouldn't normally get to see. Um, so I am sold on the potential for using an iPhone in professional work for things that it just doesn't make sense to bring out a big crew and do things on. You can, you can be more mobile. You can be more involved in the crowd. You can get more energy and enthusiasm than if you're dragging a big crew behind you in terms of things. And it's just... I find it really empowering as somebody who loves to shoot video to be able to get this kind of thing 
very quickly. So that's been my experience with the iPhone. I'm hoping I can do more and more iPhone shooting because it has been kind of creatively freeing to me to be able to go execute videos without all the infrastructure that I used to have. Um, Mitchell, let's hear from you about what you like and don't like about this idea. I'll, I'll try to make this quick because everybody knows I'm the technical Luddite that still has the uh, 6S uh, iPhone here. First of all, Bill, the, the footage you've shot and the way you shot it is stunning. It looks great. And the fact that uh, you can use a LUT now to, to extend the uh, uh, the workable image once it comes out. But uh, as a professional uh, videographer and editor, um, I hate the idea of all of this. I, I resist it, maybe for the wrong reasons. But just because they put those features into the iPhone doesn't necessarily make you um, a, uh, a photographer or uh, a DP, uh, something that normally would be left with uh, somebody using, like Alex suggested, uh, an Airy camera or a Sony Venice. Um, it doesn't instantly make you as good as those things. So I have to, uh, let me just have my little moment here. Uh, I have to question, <laughs> does a lot uh, make people buy more iPhones? I don't think so. Maybe a very small percentage of us to recognize exactly what that is. If I tried to explain to my sister what a LUT was on her new uh, iPhone 15, her eyes would glaze over in the first 15 seconds. So I, 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 I recognize that it has that capability and that's cool. But does it really belong in a phone? I'm just saying that the, the only thing I'll say about that is that the parallel between what you just said and Cytex operators talking about me when I was learning Photoshop is almost perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because they were like, you're letting all these kids in. I got, you know, I came into working on ads, you know, for Prime Sports Network or whatever, print ads. And these Cytex operators were, they were out of their mind. And the, here's, you know, here's the truth. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to do ads. I, I once printed, I, we, we joked, I've, I've told the story before. I once printed a, a square, long, a, a three inch by nine inch or something like that on a paper that was completely black for the Albuquerque something or other. That was um, because I didn't get, uh, I didn't understand what dot gain was right and so so i didn't you know so i just did that i just you know i didn't know that i should set it to 85 line not 300 anyway so um so anyway the uh but what came out of that was a completely different way of doing design you know and what came out you know photoshop you know empowered kids like me that were getting paid three dollars and 75 cents an hour to you know do ad work that was all over the you know all over our region um i did get a raise to seven seven dollars fifty cents an hour um anyway so um the because uh, i was doing such good work um anyway uh but um but that replaced the ad agency and and the ad agency had you know was expensive and had people who went to school for this and i was just hacking away at quark and, and photoshop and so i completely agree with you that that doesn't make someone that but it gives them access to start becoming that um you know i you know i i parlayed that into you know, working in Star Wars. <laughs> so, so, so I, so I, you know, I, um, you know, and so, but it all started in that, in that area. And I think that what we're going to see is a new kind of filmmaker that's coming I, out of I it. I respect that. And I think that that makes sense, but it's also true uh, to say that I know many filmmakers that are, you know, recently graduated from college and they think if they could uh, uh, mortgage their home and buy a red camera that they're now a filmmaker, same kind of a thing is that it doesn't make you a filmmaker just because you have a red and just because you of an iPhone that does LUTs uh, and has a magnificent uh, image that it can record doesn't make you a filmmaker. I'm just wondering why these things have to coexist in the well, same box. I guess, I guess what I would say is that is that now you have something that you, that's very accessible that you can carry in your pocket and you can shoot 
if someone said you should, you know, what's the best way to become a filmmaker? Well, it's to do a lot of it. And if you have the tools that will get you a lot closer, doing a lot of it is now easy because you can't buy that red. You can't buy that. You know, like to me, this is the, I'm going to use the iPhone. Um, you know, I, I would use the iPhone until I could afford a black magic camera. And then I can do a whole bunch of things with black magic cameras until I can. And I would only for very specific things might rent an Aerie or a, or a, or a Venice, you know, for bigger shows, which is what I do now. Like I, I own black magic cameras and I rent Aerie or Venice cameras for specific things that are required. I'm not going to buy, you know, I, I can't afford to buy the, the, the Aerie, but I can rent it um, for a couple of days. And so, um, but my, my, my workhorse cameras that I own that I use every day are black magic cameras. But the idea that I was able to go to my, my daughter won't let me, I offered, my daughter was at a, this is a good example of the iPhone. My daughter was at a, you know, she's playing in the jazz band and she's doing this great jazz work and I wanted to shoot it. And I offered to bring a black magic 12 K with a 100 to 400 millimeter lens so that I can get a great shot of her playing, you know, her first, uh, recital. She had no interest. She does not want to stand out like that to have her father be the weird guy with the big camera. Me being able to pick up my iPhone and shoot a reasonably good, is it as good as it would have been? Absolutely not. Um, but is it, is it something that I can now, you know, it's something that, I, that it's going to be fun and much higher quality than it would have been only a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago. Um, so, you know, the zoom, I went past the five, so it's a little soft. Um, but I, but I, the, the, the point is, is that it, it, it's allowing us to shoot this kind of footage in a way that, that hasn't been there before. And I do think that you could build a student film. If some, if you're going to spend money, I'd rather spend money on actors and crafty and sets and everything else. If I was trying to shoot a student film, because you're not, <laughs> storytelling is still the big problem. Right. And um, so picking your shots and where you put them and and I shoot all of my training on iPhones. So I never shoot any training on, on the cameras because it takes too long. It takes too long for me to do setups, you know. And so with the iPhone, I can sit there and I can shoot a four-minute training on how to build one of our rigs in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I can never do that because, I'm, you know, the rig is i got to figure out how to support it and yeah. where to put it. I, I, would, I would concede that if we get better quality UFO uh, pictures and uh, yeah. video, I'm We're going to finally see Nessie. I mean, like, like it's going to be shot on an iPhone. Like, there's an ad there somewhere. Finally, finally, we get to see finally got her. Finally, we got the resolution. It turns out it's just a big snake. Jason. Yeah, uh, um, I, I've I've got to at least say a little bit about what Mitch had to say. To me, there are two benefits here. One is profile, and then the other one is portability. And I don't just mean the portability of the rig. Um, but also the you know the portability of being able to shoot something that whether or not you understand it you can learn it um, in your pocket and you can you can have something viable and if you understand it great if not photos actually um, could probably get you some of the way there but yeah I mean a lot is yeah. the way to go well, um, my my immediate thought on, on USB C like my my initial reaction was just staggering I, I took one of these tiny little OWC drives that I, I plugged into a the 6k i think last time odbc was here and um it just it immediately detects it immediately works and uh, as far as the portability is is concerned you know if you want to see the thing that i shot of you know of that capture here it is and it's direct and it's instant and i'm you know rolling it through focus um this kind of portability is is to me just kind of there's there's just nothing like it 
Well, since you're making that point, let me note that um, my original uh, rig that I shot most of this stuff on is this old Manfrotto monopod uh, with a couple of uh, quick release mounts up at the top. One of them I use for my actual iPhone rig that's in a small rig cage. The other one I use for a light. Uh, I'll show you a piece here in just a second, but this is actually now proven to be too large for some of my things. So I've actually modified and I'm actually now using this as much as I use that this thing comes down to be so small that it's something like that concert venue at Rady Hall this was so stealthy I could come in we'd actually shot there during one concert where we had permission but I needed some pickup shots so a few days later we bought tickets and went just as crowd people and I was able to pull this out and get additional material because I didn't look like I was doing any big project I didn't need anybody's permission to do it let me pop into this one real quick and um this is a thing we did for the Girl Scout Cookies closing drive celebration, which took place on the USS Midway. And it was a lot of fun because there's just tons of Girl Scouts out there. They're having a great time. They're getting their awards and their merit badges for having done really well in terms of their Girl Scout cookie endeavors. But the, the thing I want you to look for here as we move into the night, that rig, the iPhone rig, and its ability to capture low light imagery and uh, really kind of bring people out of nothingness was so empowering. I had a little tiny light on that double rig, so a little uh, LED panel light that just popped up in faces and shots like this and really brought people out of nothingness. Um, let me go, I can't really zoom through this, but if I could give you some of these later shots in here that took place late at night, it did a fabulous job of being able to cover an event that I would have had to just have so much more infrastructure to be able to cover later, like the shot there on the deck of the carrier, uh, all these things that were very ill lit. And that's the little light on the camera just doing a much better job than I've ever had a tool to be able to do uh, during the dancing and the crazy light stuff. And the girls are just having so much fun. And to be able to be a part of that without having too much stuff carried around was very, very matched to this project. It was more important to get down in the young ladies who were celebrating their success than it was to have the most perfect pictures. But I think these things are remarkably useful for what I was able to do. So I just think it, it is another tool. It's a kind of a tool that if you don't go out and shoot with these tools, you will not understand the nuances. Where are they good? Where are they not good? But once you do, you start thinking, you know what I could do? I could put it on the end of that monopod and sneak it around really quickly, let the image flip and get a worm's eye view. So that becomes another shot that you can do that with the Blackmagic camera, that would have taken a half an hour and a crew of three to accomplish. And I just think this is the wave of one kind of shooting. And again, from news gathering, this is going to make a huge difference. Oh, <laughs> huge. It's, it's, this is, this is, I mean, now you can get incredibly high quality. And we've already seen this for the last five years. A lot of news gathering, smaller news gathering has been moving to iPhones for the last five years, you know. And so they've been doing more and more of this. And it, and they're, you know, it went from being a crew of three people, a producer and then a camera operator and the, and the host down to oftentimes the host with a tripod, you know, or a selfie stick. Um, and uh, we can talk about the the demise of, of broadcast television, um, but 
the bottom line is, is being able to do standups by yourself with something that is going to shoot this kind of footage is going to make it is going to continue to impact that. But also just from the standpoint of everybody's got a phone and now you're showing up at an event, they're not going to take your phone away, you know, like they can, you know, and so, (laughs) you know, like, you know, so you're going to be able to shoot a lot of footage. Um, that if you brought in any other kind of camera, you're going to get stopped, you know, and um, and so I think that it's it's a really you know fascinating thing. We've got a lot of questions backing up. Let's yep. get to them. So, Mitch, dive in. First up, Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Has anyone tried to program their flashlight on their iPhone as a tally light when using a camera app? Blackmagic camera app? Jason, is there any possibility to get into your light? Even if you could, you shouldn't because the tally light, rule number one for the tally light is that it shouldn't affect your subject. Um, bad idea. Uh, but also, ah, the Blackmagic app itself is not a, a, a mainline contribution. It is a nearline contribution. So it's uploading to the cloud. So a, a tally light wouldn't be useful under that scenario anyway. I have seen circumstances where an interface designer will put like... Um, uh, a quarter inch border around your monitor and when it turns green to yellow to red that can signal somebody in selfie mode that your camera is live so in that respect tally tally is probably something that someone could code into the interface uh, assuming you're using the camera the way that they want you to use it not the way you want to necessarily just a thought next question Peter Rosado in Las Vegas, Nevada, asking for the new iPhone 15 Pro owners out there. How many of you have played with the USB-C expandability? And Jason and Alex. Jason, start us off, and then we'll go to Alex. Very, very first thing I did, um, I, I plugged in that tiny little uh, OWC drive, and it worked. I've plugged in the Express dock and been, you know, been able to get Ethernet out of it. Um, and this is gigabit Ethernet as well as HDMI, which is, is pretty cool. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I, I didn't do it very first thing, but I definitely did it um, to, to make sure that it was ready for this today, <laughs> to make sure I had, I had done it once. And the it, it IDs it seamlessly, um, you know, to to make sure that uh, it, it's ready to go. And, and I was surprised at how I was looking for settings. I was like, how do I tell it to record to the drive? And it is like, if you plug the drive in, the phone expects you to that that's what you want to do. <laughs> like it's not it's not asking you anymore. Should I do it to the home drive or not? You know, it's it's expecting that, and you get a little, especially if you're doing something over. Because if you if 4K 60, you have to do that if you're doing long. And so, um, so anyway, it's it's um it, it's it's really an easy easy process. So it's very Apple like. Plug it and in. Again, when it comes when it we is. go back to when we go back to news gathering, when we go back to using anything, being able to record all of this and put it on a drive. Um, uh, and then eventually, you know, the the other advantage to this is the cell phone. One thing we haven't tested yet, which will be the next thing for us to test, is the Blackmagic Cloud through the Blackmagic camera. Um, when it comes back to news gathering, the ability to sit there and be able to f- be recording high quality video and uploading it um, in real time back to, uh, you know, like as soon as you get stopped, having it uploading to the cloud, having that seamlessly appear inside of Resolve um, is going to be a really interesting uh, puzzle, you know, because it's, it's going to allow us to turn um, news uh, information much faster than we have in the past. Jason, you wanted to come back in? Yeah, and um, Alex mentioned at the very top the, the sheer size of RAW. Um, I, again, first day did a fair bit of stuff. Uh, th- this is a 30-second video of, um, of a tree outside and, you know, and then the same version in RAW. 
And um, Alex was my test case. I, I sent them to him in, in, I think it was Google Drive. 30 seconds video, six gigs. So, yeah, um, I, I, it's, it's a lot of data, and that's a good thing. Well, that's one of the hardest compression tests there are. There's nothing like small leaves in a windy day to, you know, there's not, there's no blocks that you can figure out here. You're just going to have to compress everything. And I will say that a lot of the, 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 the thing that I've done in the past, I shoot a lot of, I see things that would be a good test case. And so I go to certain locations and in the past, and I will still do it with the Blackmagic 12K oftentimes, I will do it with a 12K because I can shoot 8K and I can shoot 4K and I can shoot different frame rates and I can do all these other things. And, um, but I, and those are very specific ones that I have to plan for and I have to figure out my power consumption. I have to do all these other things. The ability to just be able to go, I'm going to go and shoot something. Oh, I see something while I'm at the airport or at, at somewhere else and I can just... I simply want to capture that now being able to capture at this level um, as you know, for these, these are streaming test cases, usually what they are a lot of like what Jason shot a lot of moving parts that I think that are pretty that, you know, and, and I, and I want to grab them to use them as tests. Absolutely. Mitchell, you want to get back in before the end of this? Yeah, I just shot a, a TV commercial with an Aerie. Obviously, that's the uh, higher end stuff. And uh, I've been experimenting with different LUTs. And a regular 709 LUT um, does completely different uh, uh, look than using the Aerie 709 LUT uh, for that camera. Is there a special LUT available for the iPhone 15 that does the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, I mean, there's a, there is the, you now, as I, sh I showed it right at the very beginning, but what you want to do is you, you need to set your um, source, you know, before, when you start to do the, do the transform, um, what you're looking for here is that you want to, uh, you're going to set this to rec 2020 and Apple log. So that's, that's where you're going to start. And then you can set your target to whatever, you know, you can, there's a lot of different ways that you can set target. But, um, but this is the, this is the source right now um, that is typically be going to be what you use to get out of the phone. So that's the, you know, and then, and then you can go there. And again, I haven't gone into the, we'll probably do an entire, not necessarily an entire talk about ASUS in the future. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, but that's a whole nother, another bit of, bit of that because it, because ASUS, you know, has to be supported glass to glass. And so having it here um, is, is important, but I haven't dug that deep enough into it because I have only had the phone for a couple of days. <laughs> so, so we're still, still working through that. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. I bought an ONN.Walmart 500 gigabyte SSD for recording ProRes video on my iPhone 15 Pro Max. What do I have to do to prepare the drive? Can it be done on the phone? Alex, wisdom. I didn't try to do it on the phone. I just have it. I had a standard Mac partition set up for, you know, that I that I had a blank, um, a blank drive um, with standard the standard way that i would do any of those things and so so i think that that's not i don't think that you um need I, I i don't know if you can do it from the phone um you know this is uh you know i'm using just the uh in in my case apfs um is is what i had this one no, no sorry different one here hold on let me grab this again um actually so what's interesting is that this one because of how i was using this drive earlier is actually xfat which i wouldn't think would work <laughs> so, so so the xfat it's set to xfat because i was doing something else and so uh you know there's a lot of different ways that you can um uh you know you can decide whether it's xfat or ms ex ms mac os extended 
Um, you know, so I probably wouldn't do case sensitive journal, just journaled. So um, XFAT is not what I would normally use, but it worked. I thought it was, I thought I already had it in Mac OS extended, but uh, I didn't. So it still it still sees XFAT and that. And I but I I used the you know it's been formatted at some point. I mean I I grabbed a blank drive off off the desk. I have a pile of them, <laughs> so I just grabbed one of those and plugged it in. And um, but it was an XFAT um, format and it would work just fine. It probably can work. You could probably buy it and plug it in and it would work. I will say you'll go through 500 gigs really fast. I mean, with what we're doing here, it's probably 60 minutes of of, uh, of footage. So we have a lot of questions still to come. Next one. Albi Lopez from San Antonio, Texas. Have you attempted to connect a drive and a USB mic such as a Road Go or DJI? Alex. Haven't yet, um, but definitely that is the next thing, is to figure out how do we interface audio interfaces and all kinds of other things. It's going to be some version of a US um, of a USB-C hub or or some kind of breakout, and I don't know what that is yet, and we're going to be working on it over the next couple of weeks. I would bet that the big names that we know of who have done this kind of thing are working crazy because they've got now access to this new port. It's Europe and America. It's a big market. So somebody who does the little micro mixer that allows you to to handle that USB-C port and address it for various things, there'll be a big market there. It really is going to be, there's a huge expansion that's happening right now. And I bet you there's going to be a lot of new products by the time we get to early next year. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, how would you get the ProRes files off of the phone? Would you be dependent on iCloud? Jason, help us out. Okay, assuming you haven't shot it from, like directly to the drive, the files app. That's it. It's that easy. Okay, next question. And it's from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. I have many voicemails from my ten, one hundred point, excuse me, one hundred and a half year old mother who just passed. Can I use AI to have her read her letters and postcards to me, audio in her voice? John Preto, if you can move those voicemails off and upload them to elevenlabs.io, eleven written out, um, then you can duplicate her voice, and then you can have her read any anything you put in the text box. There you go. So Levin Labs is your kind of translator from text to a voice that you have programmed into your phone. Next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Have you tried Apple's music feature, Sing Karaoke Mode, which lets you raise or lower the main singer's voice? I assume by channel analysis. I discovered by accidentally switching it on, but I couldn't figure out what was going on. I'm laughing only because I've done it a couple of times. I switched the feature on and didn't quite know how to get it off. Alex, what say you? I have no idea. I didn't even know this this, this feature existed. Um, so now my karaoke, which I have never actually done karaoke, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't tried that yet. Uh, but uh, I do find it fun to have the the fact that you can take the voice out of another song. So the that is the one thing that's interesting with the karaoke is you can just remove the voice. Um, typically, because it's it's in a phantom center that it can find, it might take a little bit with it. But it's using um, you know machine learning to figure that out with the, with these uh, these songs. Um, but I haven't heard about the pitch shift. That's kind of fun. Yeah, that would be major fun. Let's see. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York. So. 
Okay, the latest and greatest instills, gas and FOMO in some, but what about the island of misfit iPhones? What are you doing with the drawer full of previous models? Uh, That's funny. For those of you who are not into our acronym system, gas gear acquisition syndrome, it is our relentless need to figure out what the the latest and greatest thing is and acquire it. And then FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, because if you don't get the latest gear, you're going to fall behind. It's this terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach. So, Alex, start us off. What's your what's your? I, I uh, don't know strategy. what you're talking about. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't. I have no idea what First you're talking step, about. First step, Alex, having, is admitting you have a problem. I, I mean, these are the ones that I didn't give to my kids and my wife. You know, these are the ones that are just laying around. And so, um, the uh, uh, the um, <laughs> my, I passed them down. My my kids have destroyed a couple of them. You know, um, in uh, you know learning how to manage uh, safety of an iPhone. Um, I've got a couple of them that are in shards now, um, and uh, but but that's where they and I've been better about getting them good cases now. And so uh, so that that's worked out well. If you have a family or if other people that you can give them to, I'm actually taking last year's the 14 and I'm trading trading it in. So Apple sent me a little box. I'm going to put it back in. Mine's in mint condition because I don't even take it out of the case until I have a case for it. So I take it out of the case, put it in the case, put the screen protector on it. So it sits in a little cocoon for, for a year until I get the next one. Um, and, and again, I don't recommend getting every year's phone. Uh, I do this because I'm on a show. <laughs> we, we talk about these things. And so I recommend uh, every two or three years, maybe thinking about it. If there's a feature that you, know, you buy things because there's a feature that makes a difference. This one has a lot of features that make a difference for me. So I would have probably bought this one no matter what. Um, anyway, uh, the, the other things I do with the phones, I use them for comms. So Unity runs and, and, uh, and, uh, agent IC runs on them really well. So I use them to run comms. Um, so I, that, that way my phone is still free. Um, so, but I have comms on another phone. So that works out well. I use them for clocks. So I use atomic clock or other things and I throw little clocks up and they're, they they work really well for that. Uh, and I also sometimes just use them for messaging separately so that I, again, so my phone is my phone and I'm doing whatever I'm doing with it. And I have these auxiliary ones that might have it. It also runs uh, the Stream Deck software really well and other kind of control, things like that, um, that, that don't require a lot of CPU. John Preto. I, I upgraded every year since 3GS, except for the 14, 13 to 14. And I'm upgrading from the 13 to the 15. And in preparation of upgrading to the 14, I had the back glass fixed, $200. I picked it up and I dropped it walking out of the store and broke the glass again. <laughs> Murphy's <laughs> Law. Raises its ugly head and snaps you. Sorry about that, John. That's got to feel bad. Let's go on to the next question. Albie Lopez from San Antonio, Texas. What is the editor of choice for some iOS editor iPhone specific? CapCut, VN, Adobe Rush, just for a quick turnaround on an iPhone. Jason Bache. Hundred percent. For me, it's it's clips every single time. It it works quickly and it can let you just burn through things. It'll do live real time captioning. Plus, if you also really want to waste some time, you can um, you can do one of these talking emoji things. Just you know, just for kicks. There you go, Alex. The one that's the most popular, that I, if it's not native, so oftentimes, you know, it's whether it's CapCut or TikToks or, or whatever, if it's not a native app that's um, designed for that, the one we've seen the most popular is actually iMovie. And so a lot of people uh, shoot and edit with iMovie on their phone. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, Apple engineers doing things 
to be most efficient in the and, Apple ecosystem. And we would say cross-plot, we would talk cross-platform, except that, you know, 90% of uh, the population under 18 is using an iPhone. I think technically it's 87 percent by the last by the last poll. So, um, you know, when it comes to editing this stuff for online, it's it's really an iPhone world. There you go. Next question. Courtney Gooden from Hollywood, California, saw lots of rolling shutter artifacts in Bill's demo footage. Is there a way to minimize this in the new iPhone? Does it have a global shutter mode? It does not, but you're seeing that, I think, from the translation in here. I will say that I have not had a single client in all of this. Now, occasionally I see a shutter anomaly. Usually it's a raster thing. At that um, uh, Rady Shell thing, they had big screens that were on almost all of my shots, and I had a couple of circumstances where the zoom lane plus the raster mismatch. But I am not seeing a lot of that kind of thing in real, and I wish I could post... Uh, let me. These are all public-facing videos. That's why I was able to use them today. Most of the stuff that I do for them is not. But let me see if I can find some way, and maybe I'll put a link in the chat to uh, my Vimeo page or something like that and throw a few of these up there in case anybody wants to see what the actual question, uh, quality that I was able to get out of iPhone footage might be. Plus, you get the music. The music is a lovely part of that. So, uh, Alex, do you have another thought? I think for both Blackmagic and Apple, um, I think global shutter is the next frontier. And I think within the next two versions of the phone, we'll probably see global shutter added to it because as Apple keeps on ratcheting this thing up. But you're right. It doesn't have that. And you do have to think about that. And when you're thinking about what kind of footage you're shooting, that's probably why you wouldn't shoot an action film <laughs> with it right now. Yeah. Uh, Mitchell. Yeah, I find that very interesting because even some brand new high-end Sony cameras don't have global shutter in them. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's hard. Well, they, you know, yeah, they're moving. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, Alex, when would you use Filmic instead of Blackmagic Cam? Filmic folks are, are friends of our show, and I feel bad about saying that I would not use filmic at this point like it's the the level of tool set and the ease of use and everything else unless unless i don't see any advantage that filmic has over the black magic camera so what i'm hoping is is they're going to find some advantages that they can take advantage of and make that available but i think that they have some they and a couple other film teams have some pretty hard uh hard days ahead as they try to figure out what to do um a black magic camera at, at fr for free with the level of the, the, I mean, it, it came out as a very mature app, <laughs> you know, like it's, it is like, it's, I'm still learning how to use the black magic camera. Um, so I would say right now, if someone paid me today to go shoot something, I might use filmic because I just don't know the black magic camera well enough yet. I keep on opening it and there's a lot to it and it's not a set and forget kind of thing. Um, what the stuff I've shot so far that I've shown you, I've been shooting with the Apple app because the filmic one, I kept on getting the settings and I was, I'm trying to figure out where those settings are. Like it's not, a couple things about it that aren't as obvious and so i'm tr trying to work through those things but um i can i don't i'm i'm testing with the black magic camera right now within the next couple of weeks I, don't, I think that's probably all i'll use to shoot footage and i will have to admit that in the first few of those videos i shot i stuck with the apple just standard video capture suite did a great job of hdr capture it was not really robust in terms of features and the ability to set things, but the automated settings gave me really good results in the first couple of videos I was exploring there. And so, um, you know, sometimes you don't really need a lot. It, it depends on the style you're shooting. Other people will, will be on the opposite side of the spectrum for me without specific fine controls that are more along the lines of what Blackmagic has done. Um, 
they will not feel comfortable. And I get that. But I will say that we also remember, don't forget, I um, Final Cut is now on iOS for iPad. They they see that as a development effort. I know they've been hiring engineers for those kind of things. So it wouldn't surprise me if they look at their uh, mobile editing software offerings and continue to turn them up uh, just inside Apple because there is, I think, a market there that they are interested in exploring. Let's go to the next question. Craig Kadoki, Toronto, Canada. Um, any test yet with the USB hubs? Um, how do you power the iPhone with a drive hanging off of it? Jason, what have you been experiencing? Um, easiest way to do it is with the OWC Express dock. Um, it will plug power straight through. There you go. Simple as can be. Uh, next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. How good is the iPhone Pro's Periscope Zoom when compared to other Periscope cameras like the S23 Ultra? Alex. You know, I, I have no idea because I haven't used the S23 Ultra. I, I hear the S23 Ultra's um, camera is amazing. And so we haven't been able to go head to head with it. Um, I think that the I think it really comes down to are you an Android user or are you an iPhone user? And, you know, so people don't really make a decision most people won't make a decision between the phones based on the cam- based on the camera. They want to see a new camera, so they buy a new phone. But they're not. Most people aren't jumping from one side to the other uh, for the for the cameras. Now, my friend Mark Spencer, who's uh, part of Ripple Training, uh, posted something the other day about a photographer who did a very deep in-depth look at the iPhone, quote, periscope camera, this new exceptional zoom. And um, he gave it pretty good reviews, but he did say at the long end of it that it is not uh, completely without artifact in terms of the long end of the zoom thing, where, and I think he mentions the Samsung offering specifically, they maybe have more elect, uh, more optical and a little less boost in there. Again, I'm not saying that this is solid. And I, I, I do believe that as these things continue to evolve, you have to test and says, does this need your, um, does this meet your needs? Uh, for me, even the existing standard camera in the iPhone running through the camera app met my needs and got me paid by my clients for the videos I did for them. And what they loved was the energy, the joy, the enthusiasm that I could capture by being out among an event and portray their sponsorship of that event in a very positive way. So that was most important to me. But I understand people who are the pixel peeping type. I think that's, I I love you guys, uh, folks who do that kind of thing. You really do advance the thing. But that's that's what? my experience. Different folks, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the thing to remember is that the creator, uh, which just came out, uh, was all shot on FX3. And and when you when you see Gareth Edwards talk about it, he's just like it gave me a lot more fluidity. It's same, it's the same yeah. kind of thing that I was able to just go out there and, and be able to move much more fluidly and 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 create the story that I'm that I'm looking for that would have been harder, hard, much harder with a large camera. This has changed everything for me about how I approach an event coverage. It's just so easy. I can sneak in. I can get the shots I want. I can go high. I can go low. It really does free you in terms of the ability to shoot in a different style than I might be used to with a tripod. Uh, Go ahead, Mitchell. What Alex just said just completely floored me. The fact that my FX3, which I'm using as a webcam, was used to shoot a major motion picture. Wow. That's yeah, something. with a lot of effects like not not this isn't like a major motion picture that was like a romantic comedy this is a effects heavy um you know um film that is 
uh, I, I've had the opportunity. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I but I've seen some pretty significant clips to it. You would never think that it's just amazing. Like it's just an amazing film. Like the the pieces of it, I'm we're looking. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I might, it might actually get me out of my cave to go see it in the theater. <laughs> High praise indeed. You got to you got to support your ILM brothers out there. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking Jason, I was very impressed by your short test. What was creating that screensaver, and how did you connect your iPhone to your Mac? Go ahead, Jason. Um, Okay, number of different ways. The the screen cap that you just saw was actually wirelessly. I I used a, a I think it's Inventor or Sonoma, but um, you can actually screen share directly to a Mac. So that was an M2 Mini that I was going directly to. Um, but there are plenty of other ways to do that. Here it is through a Pro Dock using you know. Whoop, sorry, and very fast hit the wrong button instead of switching. I muted. Um, yeah, you can do it any number of ways. The first way was through a dock, and the second way was through Wi-Fi, and that is a native screensaver to Mac OS. Let's go to the next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama City, Panama. When editing videos from my iPhone to DaVinci Resolve 18, it seems to change the colors. How could that be? The only way I can keep the colors from the iPhone in editing is with the same iPhone. Uh, so that might be, well, I, Apple does use a managed color pipeline. And so I don't know if DaVinci Resolve is somehow switching that. Alex, do you have any thoughts? I, I, I think he was, so it may be that he's getting different colors from different iPhones. And that would mean that their color profiles are different from the different iPhones. So it's probably a newer and older oh. one. So um, they, you got to, you, you do have to, the newer iPhones, the last couple years, I think the last two or three years, definitely a very different one, especially if they're shooting in HDR mode and now in log mode, they're definitely going to have a different profile to them. So you do have to look at what what you have it set to record to. So what is, are you recording to uh, the, you know, the, the compressed, the H.265 format? Are you recording to ProRes log? Um, what is the color? Is it HLG or or app or vision or or kind of a bit of both, uh, or or 709. So these are all things that you now have to pay attention to. And, and if you're shooting with the same phone, they'll all come out the same. I mean, because you didn't change anything. But uh, if you shoot with different phones, especially an older a two, a phone, two or three years older, you would definitely see some color changes as they go in. Because a lot of it has to do also with how Resolve is set up. So what is its standard um, you know, uh, transfer function that's in the project, as well as di directly derived from, the, um, you know, from, from your color plane? Let's go to the next question. Albi Lopez from San Antonio, Texas is back. Do you still look for having an ND filter when recording log to have a better control of highlights? Mitchell, what say you? That's a big ask. I mean, uh, for example, I'm using an FX3. It does not have built-in uh, ND filter. In fact, the higher-end cameras, some of them don't have built-in ND filters. And it's usually a mechanical issue. I don't think they electronically can make uh, the same thing happen with a uh, filter of some kind. So in an, a, in an iPhone, an ND filter? I don't think so, unless you clip it on there. Alex? Yeah, they, uh, you, the, they do have ND filters for them. There's a moment makes them, and there's a couple other ones that, that do make those. I don't know if they're for this one yet, but they'll come out. And, of course, the, the ND filter does more than just the log. It's going to protect those highlights when you go to a lower um, shutter speed. So, you know, basically, your your camera will automatically speed that shutter up, and you'll lose some of your motion blur um, as you go into that. So the ND filter is going to allow you. That's why you don't really need it for a film camera, oftentimes, because you're not... 
film camera, you're trying to get as high a shutter speed as you can oftentimes so you don't get the motion blur. Um, but with film, we're going to be at, if for 24 frames a second, we're going to be at uh, 148. That's a very wide open. So if you're in a sunny day and that can't close down, you're in trouble. So you need to put the ND filter on for that. And let's go to the next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Any special things to do before returning an iPhone in the trade-in program other than standard backup and erase? Um, Jason. Turn off Find My. Cancel Apple Care if you still have it, or they will keep billing you. And um, if you're really paranoid and want to be sure that the um, their information is completely off of the phone, encrypt it using a different iCloud um, ID and a different passcode, and then wipe it again. And um, your original image is going to be pretty dead. There you go, Mitchell. I agree with what Jason just said. Plus, make sure you save the original box it came in. <laughs> okay. Alex, you had another thought? And, uh, you know, I know other people will sell their phones and do other things like that. I would only do this with Apple. Like, I would only return my phone to Apple because even I will do everything, you know, I will re reduce it to a, a, a state, but Apple's entire business model is around privacy. So while they've had a couple per people here and there, you have an entire pipeline that's designed to, the first thing they're going to do when they get your phone is flash it. You know, they don't want to have any of that go out. So they're not, they don't have to try to protect it or open it or anything else. They're going to try to, they'll do a low level uh, reset to it as it rolls through the system. And so I would not use other, I mean, I'm going to do, I'm going to obviously flatten mine the best way I can, but, it, but I know that I have one layer after that, that Apple's most likely going to do it again. Thank you all for what a great discussion today for coming in and taking on the new iPhone. Hopefully, those of you who are watching learned everything you wanted to learn today. A couple quick announcements before we dive out of here. We have a new panelist meeting on Saturday, 10-7 at 9 a.m. Pacific time. If you're interested in being a panelist, uh, Alex will be there to guide you through the process. Friday's show is cable management, as I noted. We all wish the world was wireless, but we still need cables. So if you want to talk about that, we'll be here tomorrow to do that. Our thanks to our producers, the panelists the crew in the back end, everybody who puts in all their effort to make this show happen every single day. Don't forget the uh, after hours happens 24-7. It's always on. Our Taloc traversal today, and I'm looking down here, we did 84,421 miles. That's 135,000 kilometers, more than 667 million bananas for scale. There's one back there on the thing, but I'm not going to uh, grab it. Thank you for viewing the show today. We'll see you all here tomorrow.